Now, the month of September, we've been in a message series called DNA, The Bride of Christ, and we've been trying to answer this one singular question, what makes the church distinct? What makes us different than any other organization out there in the world? What makes us different than a social club or a health club or anything else out there? And so we've talked about the importance of local church membership and how that's actually a part of God's plan for the believer to to grow and to thrive in their spiritual lives. We, We all need a local church to belong to. We need a family. In week two, we talked about uh, baptism and how baptism is just this really deep, significant, incredibly important symbol and declaration to the world that we now belong to Jesus. And so we baptized four people last week. We got about a dozen more coming up in the weeks ahead and really excited about what God is doing here at New Life. And then we talked about why we are a word-rooted, a Bible-rooted community here at New Life. And why we open up this, this book, this Bible, every single week, and why we preach it as if our very lives de- depended on it. We talked about how God's word, it shapes us, it changes us into the men and the women that God has designed for us to be. And then last week, we unpacked the topic of fellowship. It's this idea that, that we're a family, this idea that we need each other. We need this fellowship. We need this community to follow Jesus well and to accomplish the mission that he's given us of reproducing ourselves, right? The Great Commission. Go out, reproduce yourself, make disciples. We can't do that alone. I can't do that alone. We need all the spiritual gifts here if we're ever going to accomplish what Jesus mandated that we accomplish as the church, as his bride. And then this week, we're going to look at the one biblical trait of a church that seems to always be the elephant in the room in most churches, and that's the topic of biblical generosity, uh, giving. And some of you are already having a little panic attack in your your heart right now. You're like, man, I cannot believe that this is the first Sunday I came to New Life (laughs) or invited my friend or my neighbor. They finally came, and Chris is going to be talking about Money. I just want you to know, like, if you're new here, uh, we don't want your money, okay? And so we're not going to do anything weird. I'm not coming off the stage with a bucket after the service uh, to see to see if you really were listening and if you really love Christ. Um, not, nothing weird is going to happen, and so you can just relax, sit back, and listen. Just so you know, we rarely, very rarely talk about money here. Now, I've been the lead pastor here for a year and nine months, and this is the first message I've preached here on this subject. So we just, we don't talk a lot about money here, but the reality is Jesus talked about money a ton. And so if we're, if we're just going to be like a, a, a biblically faithful church that teaches what Jesus actually taught, we're just going to have to kind of get over the uncomfortableness of talking about money in church and just have a chat about it every now and then and just talk about what Jesus talked about. Now, here, here's my disclaimer before uh, we get going. Uh, God doesn't need your money. So, God, like, God's not sitting in heaven saying, man, if Joe Smith would just start tithing, I could save the world. Or, like, man, if, if, if Sue Johnson would just start giving 100 bucks a month, I really could get this movement rolling. Like, God is not in heaven just, like, praying that somebody's going to start giving. God, God doesn't need your money. But God does care about what you do with your money because as we're going to see this morning, your heart, my heart, is connected to your treasure. Here's the other thing I want you to know. Thanks to the generosity of many of you, 
Our church is in a really healthy place right now financially. So th- this is not a deal, I promise you, this is not a deal where I like got an email from the elders last week and they're like, Chris, we're, we're really tight, man. Can you uh, pull something out of, the, out of the hat? And I like go back to my office and pull out the giving sermon and blow off the dust and pull out my secret weapon, my giving sermon. Like none of that happened, okay? So God doesn't need your money. We're in a very healthy place financially as a church. The question I have is, why do so many of us, even as Christians, why do we get so uncomfortable when this biblical issue is talked about in church? Especially since Jesus talked about it more than anything else outside of the kingdom of God. I think there are at least a couple reasons that many of us kind of just really almost freak out in our hearts when we hear that this is the topic we're talking about. For one, I think we've all seen churches and we've seen pastors abuse these principles for selfish gain. I mean, haven't we seen that in our culture? We've, we've seen that a, a lot. Um, we've seen the guy uh, on TV who's a pastor and he's wearing like the $10,000 Armani suit and he's flying around on his personal jet to one of his various vacation homes while taking money from poor people. And so I, th- I think we rightly feel enraged about that kind of abuse from churches and pastors. And so I think that's one reason some of us are kind of hesitant to even have the conversation. Um, but it's important for, for, for you to know that our, our elders here at New Life take financial stewardship very seriously. We know that ultimately this is, this is God's money and one day we're, we're going to stand before God and we are going to give an account for how we led this church. And that includes the finances. So I just, I just want, I want you to know that this year, 2018, we're on pace to give away right at $100,000 to our partners here in the city and around the world uh, for things like poverty alleviation, uh, fighting human sex trafficking, taking the good news, by the way, of, of Jesus to the 2 billion plus people worldwide that have little to no access to the gospel, as well as people here in our family that, that have had needs here at New Life. Many of you have been recipients of, of that generosity. So I, I just want you to know, like when you give here, we take very seriously the, the mandate to leverage our finances for the advancement of God's kingdom. I also want to say, if you ever see me wearing an Armani suit or flying around in a personal jet, to one of my vacation homes, you have permission to punch me in the throat um, or to come on vacation with me, whichever you prefer. Uh, just, just kidding about that last part. Just punch me. The second reason I think that so many of us just have kind of like this visceral reaction when we start talking about money in the church is, is not just the abuse, right? I mean, we should feel uh, angry. There should be like a holy, righteous indignation when we see a church or we see a pastor abuse God's kind of principles for giving in the local church. But I think there's, there's another reason that so many of us have that visceral reaction when this topic comes up. And I think it's because if we're just like gut level honest, for a lot of us, and I'll put myself in this category, for a lot of us, our money is an idol. And nobody likes having their idol attacked. It doesn't feel good to have what you worship attacked. Right? It makes you feel bad, makes you feel convicted, it makes you mad. And I think as Americans, a lot of us, even as Christians, we just have kind of this John Wayne attitude about our money. You're like, man, this is, this is my money. 
I worked hard for it. Nobody's going to touch it. I worked hard for it. It's mine. Don't, don't ask for it. Me, mine, mine, mine. It's mine. It's mine, right? So we have this attitude as Americans oftentimes with money, period, like with the government. Like, don't, don't ta- why are you taxing me so much? You know, this is my money. I worked hard for it. Like, church, don't ask me for money. Like, kid, your kids run up. Don't ask me for money. It's my money. Yeah, and if you want to know the honest truth, like this, is, like this attitude, that thought process is something that bleeds into my mind and my heart at times as well. Like I, I just, it, it's a thing for me that I have to struggle with because I have that same thought. I mean, I, I work hard. I sacrifice a lot. This is my money. I want to do what I want with my money. But there are some kind of like guiding biblical principles and truths that have helped keep me straight on this issue in my hope is that they'll be helpful uh, to you this morning as well. If you have a Bible, go and grab it and work your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's in your New Testament. It's right after 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me give you a little context before we jump in. Paul is writing to a church here in a port city called Corinth. He's instructing them uh, to take up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. There was a crisis going on in Jerusalem, famine going on at the time. And so the Jerusalem church was, was suffering greatly. And so there were churches in other cities that were kind of taking up this offering to send back to the Jerusalem church to care for them in their time of need. So that's the context that Paul is writing into to these believers in Corinth. This is what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So this is another church that he's referencing. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This church is actually begging Paul, like, take our money, man. We're poor. We want to give money to this. Verse 5, and this not as expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, who's this young pastor helping Paul out. We urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He's talking about their financial giving. Excel in this. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So, So Paul is saying there's a sense in which we prove our love for God and our fellow man based on our generosity, the genuineness of that love is proved through our generosity. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire for it. They, want, they wanted to be generous. They wanted to give to God's kingdom. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So Paul says, hey, listen, there's a church in Macedonia. I want you to understand, they're, they're suffering. Those brothers, those sisters are living in extreme poverty. 
but I want you to know that they gave extravagantly from a place of joy. That's what, that's what he says right there in verse two. So right out of the gate, I, want, I just want you to see that there's this connection between a believer giving and our, and our joy, and that's the paradox of giving in God's kingdom. Right? I mean, basically, everything that the world tells us to pursue in order to find happiness, Jesus shows up on the scene 2,000 years ago. He flips it all upside down. And he says, no, listen, actually, I want you to do the opposite. Right? Our, our culture tells us to, to spend our way to happiness. And the reality is many of us, if not most of us, even as believers, we've bought into that lie. Now, I just want you to understand, like, I, I know if I were to take a poll, like, if I were to grab the mic and come down, if I were to ask most of you, hey, are you wealthy? Like, are you rich? 99% of us would say, no, I'm not wealthy. I'm not rich. But I, just, I want you to understand that as an American in 2018, historically, you are wealthy. I, mean, I know you don't think of yourself as wealthy, but by historical and current standards, I want you to hear this. We are the richest people to ever, ever walk on the face of this planet. We are wealthy. If you have food to eat, if you have like food sitting in your pantry that you don't have to consume today, like it's, it's more than you need for today. If you have a, a place, a warm, dry, safe place to sleep, if you have transportation, if you have access to clean drinking water, access to medical care, you are like top 3% of the wealthiest humans Ever. I'm not talking about like today, humans that have ever lived in the history of humanity. Now listen, this is not a guilt trip. There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth or money. It can be leveraged for great good in God's kingdom. But I want you to understand there are traps and dangers that come with wealth, which is why I think Jesus talked about it constantly. Now here, here's the point. As the wealthiest generation the wealthiest nation to ever walk this planet. That's absolutely true. And yet the average American household carries, I looked this up, over $137,000 in debt. Credit card debt in America rose yet again last year by 3%. We have, we have now as a people, as a country, over $1 trillion in revolving debt, according to the Federal Reserve. Which means that as the wealthiest people to ever walk on this planet, we're still spending more money than we have in search of something that it simply cannot buy us. See, the world tells us, spend your way to happiness. And Jesus shows up and he says, no, 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 no. In my kingdom, your joy is actually going to be found in giving. That's why Jesus said it's more blessed to what? To give than to receive. It's the opposite of what our culture tells us. Paul continues unpacking this concept of biblical giving in the next chapter. So just flip over one chapter, 2 Corinthians 9. This is what Paul says, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly, he's talking about financial giving. This is the context. Whoever sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's this idea again of cheer, of joy for the believer being connected to our generosity. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower, he's talking about God. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Do you see that? There's this... God gives us this cycle as we respond in obedience to be generous people. He's going to bless us more, not so that we can live like kings, but so that we can be more generous and invest more in his kingdom, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, as we live generous lives, other people will look at the church and they will worship God because of our generosity. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints and the Jerusalem church, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. There's this idea of our joy being connected to our giving and our generosity yet again. And so I want to give you three reasons, three motivations from scripture for giving for the believer, for the follower of Jesus. And then we'll wrap it up by asking or answering rather a couple of questions like how should we give? How often should we give? How much do we have to give as followers of Jesus? All those types of questions that we all um, ask. So here's the first motivation to give believer. Number one, your joy is supernaturally connected to your generosity. Your joy is supernaturally connected to your generosity. It just is. It's the way that God has designed our hearts to work. That's why in Matthew 6, you guys remember this story. Jesus taught, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, store up for yourself treasures where? In heaven. And then he follows it up with a sobering statement. You guys know this. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus just didn't need people's money. He was, he was homeless for most of his earthly ministry as he traveled from city to city. But Jesus knows that people's heart, our hearts follow our money. He's after our hearts, which means we must submit our money to God in order for him to have our hearts. Our joy is connected to our generosity, which leads us right into the second motivation to Live generously if you're a believer. Number two, what Jesus just said, our heart follows our money. You invest in stuff, your heart cares about that stuff. It's really simple. You start investing in God's kingdom, you start investing in God's church, the bride of Jesus, your heart follows. When I was in my 20s, 
I didn't even know what the stock market was, really. Uh, it was just this really boring thing that would come up in newscasts with a bunch of confusing charts, and I would just turn the channel as soon as it came on. And at some point in my early 30s, someone said, hey, Chris, you really got to start thinking about saving something. You're going to be old one day, um, so you need to like, start a retirement thing. Or, so I started investing a little bit of my money in, in the stock market. Guess what happened all of a sudden? started caring about the stock market. All of a sudden, as I'm watching those, those TV shows, like those news shows, I don't just like flip right past it. I'm like, oh, I made 10 bucks today. This is awesome. Or I get really depressed. I lost $23 today, right? Beforehand, I didn't give a rip about the stock market at all because I had no skin in the game. All of a sudden, my, my money is tied up in it and I started caring. Why? Because my heart follows my money. My heart follows my money. Whether I want it to or not, that's just the way that we're wired. That's why money is so dangerous, and that's why Jesus taught about our money constantly. Now, if you notice, God also gives us a promise in this passage. He says, those who sow into the kingdom sparingly will what? They're going to reap sparingly. Those who sow, those who invest, those who give bountifully will reap bountifully. God says essentially the same exact thing in a small little book in the Old Testament called Malachi. In that passage, God says to his people, he says, test me, test me. Give to me, give generously and see if I don't open up the heavens and bless you. Believer, this is a promise that spans from testament to testament. God is saying to his people, listen, I am faithful, faithful. You can trust me. You don't believe me, try me. Test me. See if I don't come through. See, there's this promise. There's this cycle that as we give, God blesses us. He gives us more, not so that we can live like kings, but so that we can give more away and invest more in his kingdom. It's an old adage that I remember hearing growing up in uh, Baptist churches. You, maybe you grew up in a Baptist church, so you heard it. Um, remember the old adage, you can't outgive God? You used to hear that all the time, man. You can't outgive God, right? I'm just telling you, the older I get, this is absolutely true. And God says, you don't believe me? Try me. Test me. Live a generous life and see if I don't take care of you. Now, what's our, like, what's our standard for generosity? Go back to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. What's our standard? He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He expands on this in Ephesians chapter two. This will be on the screens for you. But Paul, this is what Paul says. By the way, he's writing to believers. He's writing to a church, perhaps not unlike this one, in a city called Ephesus. He's not writing to people that don't believe. He says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By the way, that's really bad news, what Paul said. That's who we are before Jesus saved us. But that's not where the story ends. Verse four starts with, but God. And that's always really good news when you're reading the scriptures and there's really bad news, but then you get to, but God. That means there's something good coming. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul is saying, listen, believer, we have, we have a sacrificial king. We have a generous king who gave everything to redeem, to restore rebels and sinners like you and me. And so this is what Paul is saying. This is our third motivation as believers for giving. Number three, the sacrifice of our king compels our generosity. For those of us who were once children of wrath, destined on a pathway to eternal separation from God in a place that the Bible calls hell, which, by the way, is all of us, For those of us who were on that pathway, walking in darkness, and God stepped into the equation, and he plucked us out of slavery, and he gave us life, and he gave us freedom as his sons and as his daughters, how then can we live a tight-fisted life in any way? Our entire life should be a picture of this kind of generosity, just giving giving ourselves away to our king and his kingdom. You see, generosity is a mark of the follower of Jesus. So I'm just going to tell you, like, if you, if you claim to love Jesus, but your life isn't marked by generosity, that's a red flag. That's a, that's a red flag that something is going on in your heart. Just like when my check engine light comes on in my car, I'm not a mechanic. I don't know anything about a car. I don't know what's wrong, but I know something is going on. And I know that I need to do some digging digging to figure out what's broken in the engine. An ungenerous follower of Jesus is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. And I just want to say, like this, this idea that we have in American church culture that Following Jesus just means saying some kind of like magical prayer when you're a kid at VBS or Sunday school or whatever it is, or walking an aisle in a church. That is an unbiblical idea. It is a foreign concept that you will find nowhere in the pages of the New Testament. I lived in a country in Asia where many of my friends fought for them, for my Muslim friends, following Jesus meant being willing to give up everything. Give up your family, give up your friends, give up your well-being, give up your job, your source of income, your health, your safety, perhaps even your life. To them, the thought of some Christians, even rich Christians, that rich Christians would struggle with whether or not to be generous, like that that would even be a question for us. This is like unthinkable for our brothers and sisters around the world that are putting their lives on the line to follow Jesus every single day of their lives looked up some statistics this week. Statistically, and I think, I pray our church is better than this, but statistically, American Christians give away 2.5% of their income every year. During the Great Depression in America, when people literally were starving to death, American Christians were giving away 3.3% of their income every year. 
which tells me that for many of us who call ourselves Christ followers, we spend more money on our pets every single year than we spend on the expansion of God's kingdom. Relevant Magazine published an article that said this, if American Christians increase their generosity from 2.5% to say 10% of their income, that would generate an additional $165 billion per year. $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases within five years. Church, that's on us. The church, the American church, has the capacity to wipe out global hunger. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy within five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. $1 billion could fully fund all overseas mission work. So every missionary in the world completely fund them so they could focus on their mission and their task. And that would leave between 100 and 110 billion left over for additional ministry expansion. Believer, we, we have the capacity, we have the means to give more extravagantly than any people at any time in human history. And yet, statistically, we, we are the most tight-fisted the most selfish, self-centered Christian generation in history. Just let that sink in for a minute. That, like, that's not okay. One day we will all stand before God and we will give an account for how we lived our lives and how we invested and managed God's money, by the way. If you're a Christian, it's not your money, it's God's money. How we stewarded his money on this planet. And I want you to hear me, at the end of the day, it's not a money issue, it's a heart issue. Our joy is connected to our generosity. Our hearts follow our money. We have a sacrificial king that compels us to live generous lives as his generous people. Those are the three reasons, among many others, that we give as believers. The next question I get a lot as a pastor is, well, where, where do I give? How, how much do I give? How consistently do I give? Do I, have to, do I have to give to my church? Can I just support like some compassionate international kids or can I just send like some money to my friends who are missionaries in Africa or Asia? And listen, it's certainly not wrong to do any of those things, but I want you to understand that the biblical pattern of giving could not be more clear. Look at Acts chapter four. This will be on the screens for you. This is Dr. Luke. He's describing the first century church beginning in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed, this he's talking about the Jerusalem church, church in Jerusalem. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many or as owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Like they didn't take their giving, just like decide to give it out on their own. Like they brought it to the Jerusalem church. They laid it at the leaders of the church's feet. He said, you guys take care of this. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, this will also be on the screens for you. This is Paul. Again, he's writing to that same church in Corinth that we just read about. It says this, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, right? They 
like us, they gathered together on Sunday to worship. The first day of the week, each one of you, like not, not just the wealthy, like each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so there will be no collecting when I come. So, so here's, the, here's the pattern for, for giving if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus. Here's the pattern. Each believer putting something aside, giving to God on the first day of the week when they gather to worship through their local church. So where do I give? How do I give? The biblical pattern is we give regularly. So for you, that may be weekly. For others, that may be monthly. It doesn't really matter. The point is that there should be a regular pattern of our giving. So we are to give regularly. We are to give it generously. And we are to give through our local church. So yes, let's support missionaries, let's support compassion ministries, but we must not, believer, we must not neglect the bride of Christ, the local church. You say, Chris, well, man, does that mean that I have to tithe? Does that mean I have to like give it like 10%? Like, isn't that an Old Testament concept? We don't have time this morning to unpack all of that. I will tell you this, the New Testament doesn't command a tithe you will find nowhere in the New Testament a command to tithe. But here's the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Think back to the stories in the Gospels. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Comes to Jesus, says, hey Jesus, how do I get eternal life? What does Jesus tell him? Sell everything. You gotta go all in, man. You wanna be my follower, you wanna be my disciple. You don't get to hold back, you gotta go all in. Sell everything, give it to the poor, come and follow me. Rich dude walks away because he loved his money more than he loved Jesus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus, tax collector. He's like this Jewish mobster. He meets Jesus. First thing he does, he starts following Jesus. What's the first thing he does? He gives away half of everything he owns. And then he tells Jesus, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give back four times to anybody that I've defrauded. So he probably actually gave away around 70 to 80% of everything he owned as soon as he meets Jesus. There's a story in the book of, of Mark, Mark's gospel, where Jesus is sitting outside the, the temple and he's watching as people come up to the temple offering box and they're putting in their tithes and they're putting in their offerings. And there's all these rich people, right, who are coming up and they're putting in large sums of money. But then you remember the story, like there's this, this little old poor widow. Remember that story? She shows up outside the temple and she's got two copper coins equal about one penny. So she's got like one penny. That's all the money she has. And she puts it in the temple box. And Jesus calls over his disciples. He's like, hey guys, come, come here, come here, come here, come here. I want, show, I want to show you that. You see that? You see that poor widow over there? She just put in more money than all those rich people over there. And you just have to imagine the disciples are like, well, Jesus, what are you talking about? She, there's no way she put in more money than everybody. And he's like, no, 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 no. You need to listen to me. See, all those rich people, they gave out of their abundance. They only gave what didn't affect them. It wasn't a sacrifice for them. It didn't hurt them. But she, she gave everything she had out of her poverty. Jesus is like, that's my girl. That's my girl. That is the heart that God is looking for. Like for Cheryl and I, listen, I don't say this in any way to like pat myself on the back or to give you a guilt trip or anything. I just want you to know where we've landed. We decided when we got married, and by the way, when we got married 15 years ago, we were dirt poor, like poverty line level poor. 
was at school full-time. She was working as a, as a nanny full-time. I was working at night loading trucks. But before we ever got our first paycheck as a married couple, we just decided we're giving away a minimum of 10% of our income every year, no matter what. And we're just gonna, we're just gonna trust that God's gonna take care of us. I can tell you in, in 15 years, we have never once, not one single time, gone without. Never once. We've never gone hungry. We've never not been able to pay a bill. Now I'll tell you, we stopped budgeting for several years because the math didn't work out. We had way more bills going out than we had money coming in. We just threw that thing in the trash and said, God, we're gonna trust you. And I don't know how it happened, but it happened, I'm telling you. I'm just telling you. We're now in a place where God has blessed us and we're, we're above 10% now. We give away typically 12 to 13% of what we make every year. We support Compassion International kids. We give to our missionary friends, all that. But I want you to understand this. The lion's share of our giving comes right here through New Life Church for two reasons. The first reason is because that is the biblical pattern of giving. The second reason is because, I want you to hear this, we love this church. We believe in this church. We believe in the mission here. We want to be a part of the thousands of lives that are being impacted through this church family every single year in Asheville and in faraway places. Most of us will never even go. And I have to be honest with you, this week as I'm like studying these passages of all these disciples who went all in and like held nothing back when they followed Jesus, I'm not even sure that we're giving enough. I'm not convinced that, that, that we're giving enough. Like, are we giving to the point where it's a sacrifice? That like, it's really hurting for us to partner with God in his kingdom expansion. And the thought that I have is like, what, what if the question for the follower of Jesus isn't how much do I have to give? What if that's the wrong question? What if the, what if the better question for us is how much can I keep? How much should I keep? How much dare I keep? When there's so much suffering in the world, thousands of kids dying today because they don't have enough food to eat, they don't have enough clean water to drink. Over two billion, that's a billion with a B, guys. Two billion people who have never even heard that there's a God in heaven that loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them and forgive them and to give them life in this world and in the life to come. Two billion people have never even heard that good news. In light of that, how much do I dare keep? Christian, the tithe isn't our standard. Jesus is our standard. He showed us what generosity is. As believers, I think our response just has to be, God, like, whatever you want. God, whatever you want, whatever it takes, whatever sacrifice looks like for me to see this mission go forward and see people come into your kingdom and find hope in life, God, help me trust you. God, help me love you more than I love my stuff, more than I love my money. God, help my life to just be a picture of your generosity to the world around me. And in this, in this lifestyle, we will find joy. It's a paradox. I know it doesn't make sense. But there's joy in giving yourself away. This is a, a goofy illustration, but I'm a goofy guy, so that's what you get, goofy stuff. Cheryl, my wife, um, had a birthday a couple of months ago. And I asked her what she wanted for her birthday, and she really wanted a, a bike 
uh, because our kids like to ride around the neighborhood, and she got tired of running the whole time, and she just wanted to ride with them. And so uh, I took her to, to a store to pick out a bike for her birthday, and the giddy little cute grin she had on her face as she literally rode the bike from the back of the store to the register was priceless. It's priceless. Now, now listen to me. I promise you, in that moment, I wasn't thinking, man, I really could have used that money to buy a green egg grill. Like that, I mean, maybe the thought crossed my mind once. But for the most part, for the most part, I wasn't thinking, like, man, I really could use that money to buy the grill that I've really been wanting. Or, man, I, I could have used that money to buy, like, two Alabama football tickets, you know, with, with that money. Like, listen, it was, it was my joy to give to whom I love. You don't have to, like, compel me or twist my arm to live a generous life towards my wife because I love my wife. When we love God, we don't have to be compelled to be generous. It's an overflow of our hearts. So I just want to ask you, Christian, where's your heart this morning? Where's your heart? Your generosity is a measurement of where your heart is with Jesus. If you say, man, oh, I can't, there's no way. I can't give 10%. Oh, fine. Start with 5%. Well, I can't give 5%. Start with 3%. Start, if you're not giving at all, start with 1%. Just don't stand, do something. And as you see that God is faithful, that he will honor his promises, that he is going to take care of you, that he's not going to let you starve to death, then you can increase your generosity and be more and more faithful. But start somewhere, friend. Love Jesus well. We have a sacrificial king. His people should be a reflection of his sacrifice, of his generosity. I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis as the band comes. Uh, you guys know if you've been around, I love, I love Lewis. He's one of my favorites. Um, this is what Lewis writes about Christian uh, giving, Christian generosity. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. So Lewis says, whatever amount you think you can give, you probably ought to be given a little bit more than that. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, in other words, if it doesn't hurt, if your giving doesn't hurt, it doesn't affect your lifestyle in some kind of way, Lewis says, I should say, they, our gifts, are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure, our giving, our generosity excludes them. So I just want to say, if you're in the room today, if you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask you, where's your heart this morning? Where's your heart? Does Jesus have your heart? Or does your stuff have your heart? Does your money have your heart? Does your savings, does your 401k, does your house payment, whatever, does that stuff have your heart? I also want to say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't know this sacrificial king, this generous king that allows us to live this generous life, I just want you to know that he invites you to come into relationship with him today. You don't have to leave here until that happens. 
Once the service is over, I'm going to be down here. There's going to be some other leaders down here. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to put your faith and your trust in Jesus and begin to live out this life-transforming, generous life as we follow him. But if that's you, don't leave here until that's settled. Let's pray. Father, Father, help us to do what we cannot do on our own, and that is to treasure you above everything else in our lives. God, help us to treasure you more than our stuff, more than our bank accounts, more than our money. Help us to love you more than all that stupid stuff. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for being a sacrificial king, a generous God. God, help us in return, in response, be a sacrificial people, generous with our whole lives their time and our talent, our money, everything, so that your kingdom might be advanced so that more and more people might find their hope and their life in this Jesus who actually came and he lived a perfect life on our behalf and he died to pay for our sins and he rose again to give us life eternal, God. It's in Jesus' name, his powerful name, his beautiful name that we ask and we pray, amen.